I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi Esther, it's so good to be talking with you again. Hi Sarah, yeah, wonderful as always. So today we decided to focus our energy on something that's very important for all new parents when they come home with a new baby, which is nourishment. Yes, nourishment. I have this kind of uh, equation that I uh, developed with my friend Mindy, who was also somebody who was co-owner of a business called The Fourth Trimester when I first came to San Francisco 25 years ago. Um, she was my first real boss, <laughs> which is and a wonderful, wonderful woman, woman Mindy Zlotnick, um, wonderful infant massage instructor. And we started working on a project that maybe someday we'll get finished called Nesting, A Guide to Nourishment in the Fourth Trimester. So it was kind of a cookbook and postpartum book. And the mathematical equation we came up with was um, nurturing plus nutrition equals nourishment. And by that we meant like it's one thing to put food in front of people and it's another thing to come in with a nurturing vibe as it were. But if you can have the two go together, then what you're really doing is nourishing people. And so I think of that as my, my overall goal in my work as a postpartum doula is nourishment. So today, I thought we would dive into like what's good nutrition for postpartum and how can that be nourishing for new parents. I was curious, Sarah, if you wanted to talk just for a moment about what that was like for you in the first weeks after you had Evelyn? Well, as a first time mom, I was surprised by how much I actually wanted to eat, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially compared to while I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. So for example, people often say, oh, you know, when you're when you're pregnant, you're eating for two and that's when you want so much food and you get the stories of the wild cravings of pickles and ice cream and things like that. Mm-hmm. which is fun and somewhat true. <laughs> what I wasn't anticipating was how hungry I would be as a breastfeeding mother. Yeah. Because for me, I've always had a very fast metabolism. And so suddenly my appetite just was voracious. And I was surprised by how I would eat pretty much anything that was put in front of me mm-hmm. as much as was put in front of me mm-hmm. at any hour of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would be asked, oh, are you hungry for something? And I would think, oh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) And then a tray of food would be put in front of me with celery sticks with peanut butter in it and some cookies that my husband made and some veggie sticks and just various other foods. And I'd look away and then I'd look back and it was empty. The plate was (laughs) wiped. (laughs) 
And I thought, oh, okay. I guess I was hungry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I often have to counsel um, the helpers, right? The people who are around, whether it's, you know, a mom or a dad or a grandparent, as it were, the mother or father of the parents, um, or the sisters, or you know, whoever it is who said, I'm going to help, that the best way to be helpful is to not ask, are you hungry? And what do you want? Because your brain isn't functioning on that level. Like you just pointed out, I mean, you could not have given a better description <laughs> of how this goes down. Like it was just brilliant. And the fact is that if you have to think about it, it's not helping you, right? <laughs> you yes. need somebody else to just do that part for you because you are gestating a baby on the outside, trying to heal and recover, trying to establish a milk supply and a relationship of feeding your baby. And all of that is 24-7 for weeks. You don't have the bandwidth, nor frankly, the energy and certainly not the time to go into the kitchen and do this part of self-care that you so desperately need to have attended to. It's important that those of you out in podcast land listening, who I hope are people who want to help postpartum parents, understand that the best way to help is to nourish the new parents. And the best way to do that is not to ask them what they need, but to know what they need, which is nourishment. And that comes in the form of nourishing foods beautifully and well prepared in massive quantities like the cone heads eat, <laughs> but maybe not so messy and um, regularly showing up without having to be uh, asked for. Yeah, I think that's some very, very important information that needs to be out in the world. And, you know, when I say it's very important, Sarah, I think that people don't understand that when the numbers of parents, um, especially new mothers who are experiencing postpartum depression, is so relatively high in our culture, we need to be looking at how is this experience going down and what are the social emotional components of this phenomenon and one of the elements here is that parents just basically aren't getting their basic physiological needs met in a socially emotionally appropriate way and I think that's very powerful stuff right there I mean maybe they're getting fed but it's at the expense of sleep Right. Oh, absolutely. I know for me personally, if I were left to my own devices, I would have preferred to stay in bed and recover and relax and move as little as possible at the expense of everything else. Yeah. And that would include cooking for myself. The only things I wanted to cook and make for myself when I was home alone a month in or so was just stuff I could pull out of the fridge and maybe heat up very quickly on the stovetop. Yes. Or just eat directly out of the fridge, a cold sandwich mm. or something. Mm -hmm. So I wanted fast food that was a large quantity that was easy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that had I not had someone 
more than one person, people helping put food in front of me right at the beginning, I don't think I would have been fully fed. I don't think I would have eaten enough. Yeah. And meanwhile, you, uh, your tummy went right down, (laughs) you know, you didn't, you weren't languishing around, um, having trouble losing weight, which I know in our culture is such a crazy driving force. And, you know, just to make a little note on that subject, I think when moms are forced to grab whatever's available and what so often is so readily available is carbs, moms can't lose the weight. You know, moms need protein and fats and vegetables, and they need them showing up often. And it's the thing that people don't put in front of of new moms often. It's, you know, often it's more like rather than a nourishing stew with all of those elements, it's pastries from the bake shop or a cake that they baked or a pasta dish that they threw together instead of the kinds of really truly nourishing dense calories that moms need when they're doing all of this difficult physiological work. And so again, like when we come back around to the actual nutrition part, what do moms need? Well, they need lots of fluids, right? And it can't be water. It can't just be water all day long. It needs to be nourishing fluids, fluids with cell salts in them. They need, as I just mentioned, uh, high quality proteins and fats. They need lots of minerals in the foods that they're eating. They need things to be salted. (laughs) They need, you know, and well, well seasoned. And they need those carbs that they do get to be nourishing carbs, carbs that are loaded with vitamins and minerals and healthy fiber. So again, I turn to vegetables rather than breads, cookies, etc. Now, I'm not suggesting that moms shouldn't have some treats in there, <laughs> but let's hope that those treats really on balance are loaded with good nutrition uh, at the same time. And that's not an impossible task. You can produce a healthy nourishing cookie to go on that snack tray if you're gonna bake cookies. So again, that snack tray needs to be diverse and have a lot of healthy elements. So if women are worried about losing weight right after birth, for whatever reason, is there a possibility that not having enough calories could affect milk production? Not only can it produce milk production, but it can have a negative effect on weight loss, right? Because the body will hold on to fluids and fats by way of storing energy for itself for the long term. So if you're not signaling the body, hey, this is a rich environment, there's plenty of abundance, you can be well nourished, the body will go into protection mode, right? It'll get, it'll have an insulin insulin, uh, response and tell itself, okay, we need to hold on to everything we can because if we're going into starvation mode, we have to survive and we have to help this baby survive. So not only will you have a tendency to, to kind of go into a diabetic response and hold on to the weight, the weight but um, you may, in fact, also have the response of just not being able to make enough milk. Now, most humans will make milk in order to have their babies survive, even at their own expense. Like we're kind of built 
once we give birth to, if possible in any way, make milk and even if it means melting our own bones and teeth (laughs) to uh, make enough milk for our baby to survive if we're actually, actually starving. This isn't the healthy way to do things. And cultures all over the world acknowledge that If you want to protect babies, what you first do is you nourish mothers. You take care of the mother so that the baby will survive. And that means during pregnancy and that means during the postpartum recovery period. All over the world, they acknowledge that there's this long period of 100 days, give or take a few, which, by the way, is more than three months, right, where mothers need special support and nutrition and protection. That's intended to help that mother survive and help that baby survive well into that child's own (laughs) adulthood and childbearing years. It is important to recognize that women can't really have a healthy adulthood post-children if they don't have a healthy pregnancy and postpartum. And that is well documented in other cultures, right? There's a phrase in Asian culture, 40 days for 40 years, meaning that you take really good nourishing care of that mother in the first 40 days while she's recovering so that in 40 years from now, she's still a healthy woman so that she can be a healthy grandmother and great-grandmother. Wow, I love that. Yeah, isn't that like such a wonderful... I mean, to think that you could be living in a culture that understood your needs in that fundamental way throughout your life. I don't think we really have anything like that in America. And it's really sad to me. But it's one of the things that I studied in college in my anthropology uh, (laughs) years was, gosh, do other cultures acknowledge a postpartum period. And it turns out that not only they acknowledge it, but they have well-documented literature on the subject about nutrition. For instance, the eating of black bone chicken stew (laughs) every day. Like a black bone chicken is a little bantam chicken that gets stewed and a mom is offered this nourishing stew that has the chicken and vegetables and seaweed and all of these blood-building, nourishing, well-cooked, easily digested nutrients in them. And this is offered to mom every day. Like you you just have to have it, you know? (laughs) And I think, wow, you know, I could have used that. I could have (laughs) really used that. I would have felt so much better if somebody had been bringing me that. And that's only one element, right? But it's a really important element. It has all those things that I just pointed to. I love that. And it almost seems like one end of a spectrum where on the one hand, we have this offering of the right nutritious food. So it's just presented, it's there, it's expected. And on the other side, there's some of the, I sort of on the extreme would be the lack of that type of food being offered and the lack of knowing that that food is needed. But then also the added pressure, I think that some people will put on themselves when they look at photographs of these moms who are back to work so quickly or already running with perfectly flat stomachs through the park with their jogging stroller three weeks out of the gate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I mean, some people are amazing and they bounce back like that. 
but that's not for everyone. And I love the idea of, of new moms giving themselves a bit of a hall pass for the first three months Mm -hmm. after they give birth and say, okay, well, this is about recovery. This is about my body and my baby and being healthy. And I can do those things when I'm ready Mm -hmm. and just take a bit of a break from that and just release oneself from the pressures that they might feel. And there is this cultural messaging, right? Like it's very strong in our culture that moms should be able to do everything without a net, right? Without support and without nurturing. They are the nurturers. Everybody else gets the nurturing. Moms go without. They don't need it. And of course, I think that the perfect indicator of how deeply, deeply untrue that is, is the degree to which women suffer from postpartum depression in our culture. I I think if people started looking into that and wondering like, gee, you know, (laughs) why is this happening? Well, it's happening because moms are malnourished. It's happening because everyone who is maybe the likely candidates for helping and supporting a mom are only available on a very limited basis and have to be back at work themselves within two weeks of when that baby comes home or six weeks, which is still way too early or three months, which in my opinion is still too early. And all of these, you know, the two week, the six week, the three month, these are major developmental shifts for mother and baby and the family, frankly. And so you imagine taking away the support at the very moment when a developmental spurt is about to happen or isn't in the midst of happening. And I think that's kind of a recipe for potential disaster. And these are often the times when women express deep sorrow and grief or physical, um, you know, lack of well-being or whatever. And what do we tell moms? Go out and join a baby group. Now, I have nothing against joining the baby group. I have nothing against going to mommy baby yoga. I think these are wonderful, wonderful things. They're just not a substitute for appropriate nourishment and support. And by the way, look what we're doing. We're asking the mom to get out of her nest and go out and seek these things. And she may not be ready. I remember something that you mentioned to me early on when I was recovering at home with a new baby, you told me so many good little tricks, like (laughs) make sure you pee before you sit down to breastfeed, (laughs) which aren't obvious, but so crucial. (laughs) But one of them was about making sure that you're full enough to lay down and breast when you're trying to take advantage of the baby sleeping next to you or in their crib or wherever they may be. Because when a person is hungry, they're on alert and it's difficult Mm -hmm. to rest. Yes. Yeah. Your mind, it knows that the body needs nourishment. The brain, I should say, maybe not the mind, but the brain certainly knows. And it's going to be in seeker mode, right? And when you're in seeker mode, you cannot rest and relax. That's why, you know, you need to get up and pee while that baby's having a diaper change. And so that you're ready when your baby's hungry and you need to be eating while that baby eats so that when they're ready to sleep again, you too can sleep, right? So, right, you you beautifully circled us right back to the three things that get reiterated every time we talk, right? 
eat when the baby eats. Why? So that you can sleep when the baby sleeps. And then after the baby breastfeeds on the first side, you can get up while they're getting burped and diaper changed and you can go pee. And then you can get back in bed, breastfeed the baby. When the baby falls asleep, you fall asleep. It's kind of simple, right? But it's only simple if you have people around you who are nourishing, people who will make sure that that food shows up when that baby's ready to nurse in the form of snack trays, in the form of nourishing soups and stews. Not only that, but they're nourishing because, you know, these people are nourishing to you because they're willing to sit by the bed while you breastfeed and spoon that stew into you if your hands are full of baby, which in the first two weeks, they often are. You don't necessarily feel competent to try to feed yourself and a baby at the same time, right? Like, it took a while for you to figure out how to do things one-handed. So let's talk about the snack tray. What yes. is on the snack tray? What is that? Okay, let's paint a picture. Imagine a nice-sized dinner plate to start with, okay? And we'll start out with the vegetarian options because, of course, it's not that difficult to add on slices of salami or, you know, roasted um, poultry or whatever. Um, but we want to be sure that there are proteins and fats on this tray. So you mentioned earlier the peanut butter and the celery. Now, if somebody's allergic to peanuts, but not tree nuts, then, of course, it could be cashew butter uh, almond butter, um, walnut butter, all of these are excellent options. And in fact, if you're making this snack tray twice a day for somebody every day, you should be mixing it up. It shouldn't be peanut butter all the time. <laughs> but those are some really great healthy um, protein fat combinations. Um, cheese is another great protein fat combination. Um, if you're feeding a mom animal meats, then, uh, you know, don't go for the, the turkey breast or the, tur or the chicken breast. Go for the thigh. It has iron in it. It has fat in it. That's going to be way more digestible. And mom's going to get a whole lot more minerals, especially if she's anemic. She's going to need iron. And there's virtually very little in a breast and there's lots in a thigh. So thigh meat people. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you could imagine sliced carrots. Now, most people think of carrot sticks, and that's perfectly great. But one of the things I like to do is slice a carrot at an angle, right? And, and make a chip, a nice big chip of those carrots. And then when she dips them in her little bowl of hummus, which is loaded with protein and healthy fats, <laughs> she can get a nice dollop of that hummus into her mouth, right? And it's not just chips, uh, corn chips, potato chips, whatever. A carrot is some really good uh, vitamin A and other um, really important minerals and vitamins that a mom's going to need, not to mention the fiber. 
else do we we would always put a little dark chocolate on your tray as a little snack or a or a chocolate chip walnut cookie made with oatmeal um, on your snack tray. We also did a couple of things pretty regularly. We had dried fruit. Yes. Which I loved. All kinds mm-hmm. of dried fruits, apricots and plums and nectarines. Mm-hmm. And then I remember eating a lot of garlic toast. Yes, you had wonderful homemade bread. You, in particular, were courting little kinds of infections that we were concerned about. And so I made sure to feed you garlic. (laughs) Um, And because garlic is a wonderful, uh, not only does it stimulate your appetite if you're not allergic to it, which few people actually are, but babies love the taste of garlic in the milk. Stanford did a study and showed that babies will actually suck more and more vigorously if there's some garlic in their milk, um, which is exactly the opposite of what people say about garlic and onions, that they make babies gassy and they don't like the milk. And it turns out to be wrong. They actually do like it. But it's also a wonderful, what's called a systemic antibiotic. And so it helps the whole body clear infections, mild infections. So it doesn't hurt to have a little garlic in your diet. We didn't scrimp on the butter remember? (laughs) (laughs) We weren't trying to, you know, imagine that somehow you wouldn't flourish if you had some butter on your toast. And I'm also remembering that we did things like uh, nicely, lightly steamed broccoli and cauliflower florets. Again, you know, it's the sort of thing that people say, well, you're going to make your baby gassy. But in fact, you know, there's no no evidence that somehow the, the elements of broccoli and cauliflower that make you and me gassy actually get through your bloodstream into your lymph and into your milk and make babies gassy. And the nutrition in kale and cauliflower and broccoli is so wonderful and rich that it's a shame to start eating nothing but rice porridge when you so need these nutrients to help you heal and recover. Sometimes we'd have the hummus. Sometimes we would do like a nice yogurt-based dip. So with some nice herbs and the addition of a little extra oil and maybe some other flavorings, maybe some vinegar or something of that nature that you could dip so that we were adding to the protein and and fat content of your snack tray. Yeah. Now, along the lines of the dried fruits, which are, of course, delicious, we don't want to go overboard on things that are sweet. And so when we're putting dried fruit on a snack tray, we're making sure that mom also has the full complement of fluids to go along with that because it takes a little extra to digest dried fruits. Sometimes what I do for moms is make a fruit compote, especially if her digestion is feels slow, if she feels constipated or, you know, is wondering when she's going to be able to have a bowel movement and is a little reluctant to eat a whole lot of colase, which, you know, has no nutritional value and does uh, you know, its only job is to help you have a bowel movement. So, um <laughs> I think that there are nutritional nurturing ways to help moms um, experience 
uh, good digestion. And so I like to stew those dried fruits and then mom can have them with a bowl of yogurt or on her oatmeal for breakfast or something of that nature. I really enjoyed having that breakfast in particular. My standard breakfast every morning was typically a bowl of scrambled eggs. Mm -hmm. Not too many, a small bowl of scrambled eggs, but it was very buttery and delicious. Mm -hmm. And oatmeal with the fruit compote mm -hmm. on it. And then a cup of tea. It yeah. was usually either mother's milk, which is the, or fenugreek, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, or a peppermint tea or a chamomile tea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, who wouldn't thrive on a breakfast like that? I think it would be good for everybody, right? <laughs> and especially for a breastfeeding mom, right? And then, you know, you're at some point, you probably had a snack and then you had a nice lunch, like a real meal for lunch, and then some more snacks and then a real dinner and then a snack tray to get you through the night. And people wonder, like, how much food is that? Well, it's a lot of food, but you're producing a lot of milk. I mean, Evelyn was gaining beautifully, and that was because you were feeding her. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think people are sometimes astounded if they just look at it from a quantity standpoint. But I think it's important that we reiterate the quality standpoint, right? You weren't just wolfing down donuts. No, I wasn't. I was eating healthy snacks like yogurt with granola and fresh fruit and nuts on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was yeah. delicious as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. I did check in on my weight and I remember losing a ton of weight initially just mm -hmm. because that was the natural cycle. But yeah. that happened regardless of what I was eating. Mm -hmm. And then I, I just, I could eat a ton and my weight was steady. Yeah. So yeah. this kind of eating regimen certainly didn't make me gain weight, no. um, but it felt very good. And I, I did feel nourished. Yeah. And I should mention that, you know, there is a plateau in weight loss, which is very natural and normal and healthy. And the plateau is about minimum of five and often as much as 10 pounds over whatever your pre-birth weight, normal pre-birth weight would be. And you know, think about it. Like, how much do you think your breasts weighed, Sarah, compared to when you're not <laughs> lactating, right? That's probably a minimum of three pounds right there. <laughs> Don't you think? Like, you lift probably. those things up and they are heavy. So a lot of times people don't take it into account. Like, you've grown some tissue here. <laughs> the other thing is that women naturally store some extra weight in their thighs and hips, and that is for milk production. It's there for a reason, right? It's glycogen-based. It's good, healthy fat, and it's there so that you can make milk for your baby. It's not a lot of weight. It's enough so that you have a ready store of energy to burn and nutrition to make milk from. So I think it's very important that women understand, like, your body knows what to do. Yeah. So fighting it tooth and nail to try to lose that extra inch of thigh or whatever it is, and that little extra hip that you've got, and certainly those breasts, like, that is not only probably a losing battle, but an unhealthy one. 
Particularly if it makes someone feel bad that suddenly they're not making enough milk and have to move to formula if their goal is to breastfeed. And Correct. People need to choose what's best for their family. And there are a lot of different ways that work for families mm-hmm. and it's all wonderful. Yeah. But if someone has the goal of breastfeeding, then they probably don't want to try to be too hard on their bodies early on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there is a physiological shift at around three months that women often find, like those of us who are otherwise not paying much attention, they find that that little bit of extra kind of melts away at three months because the way we make milk and the demand supply um, relationship changes at three months. Women often worry that they don't, they aren't making as much milk at three months when in fact the way they're making milk is much more spontaneous to the baby's needs. It's almost magical how we stop having to store copious quantities of milk and we just make it in a very immediate fashion. And so, you know, the breasts relax a little bit and we also around three months just naturally feel energetic enough to be doing more. We have a three-month-old baby who needs to be out in the world more and more developmentally. They're just no longer a fetus on the outside. They are a baby. They're somebody who wants to get out there and socialize and have new experience. And so, you know, if you think of it in those terms, it's not like you haven't done anything or gone outside for three months, but your capacity to do more just really expands around the three-month mark. And so if you can build a kind of kind of imaginary nest that has a (laughs) three-month warranty around it and feel comfortable and comforted in it and follow your baby's developmental cues, I think all of this is very natural to you know, having our bodies in the way that is very normalized and normal. Absolutely. I'm so proud of every woman who has gone through the birth process because Mm -hmm. our bodies are amazing. Mm -hmm. And I love my post-birth body. And I really hope that all other mothers out there also love their post-birth bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. And, um, you know, (laughs) speaking of culture, um, I think that we have forgotten in this culture that the, the pregnant and lactating body was actually the cultural ideal (laughs) for many, 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 many centuries all over the world, you know, that, that a, a fertile body was a healthy and beloved body and culture. And we really lost that somewhere along the line and really don't understand it anymore um, and and have a bit of a, a lack of appreciation for it, therefore. I mean, I think it's my experience that women want to look good while they're pregnant and even maybe look sexy when they're pregnant. And while I have no objection to that, I think that I don't think it needs to be the goal. And so... Lunch. I want to just go back to lunch for a moment because (laughs) it's so good. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Lunch is (laughs) And one thing that you introduced to us was, I mean, something that a lot of people already know how to do and probably do do if they cook at home very often, which is make a really big meal 
that can be saved in the fridge. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how nice it was when I was home alone with the baby to be able to pull something out of the fridge in a little container that all I had to do was heat it up. And I knew I had five or six or more of these in the fridge or the freezer. Mm -hmm. That was fantastic. Yeah. And I think mothers-to-be and families-to-be are kind of setting up their help. It doesn't hurt to kind of actually be really descriptive and tell people, you know, we're not going to need visitors so much as we're going to need nourishment. And a really big, delicious pot of rich stew that we can eat for lunches and dinners and put away portions in the freezer is going to really, really take us far. That's a little hint to you listeners out there. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that is a really intelligent way to cook. I think oftentimes when one of the parents has gone back to work and really only gets a chance to be with the family on weekends, right? You know, often the pressure is to go out and do something and and go have an adventure and go have some fun. And I always wonder why the adventure isn't, let's go to the grocery store (laughs) and let's pick out all the really good foods that we're going to eat for the week and let's prepare them together, knowing that one of the partners probably breastfeeding half the time, but you know, they're doing their part by doing that, of course, and preparing meals and snacks for the week. So again, that's a little hint for when you start to transition back to work, like put nutrition first, it's going to make your week go a lot better. There's still time to have a nice adventure. (laughs) Yes. Um, And grocery shopping, you had said something about doubling up. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, if you prenatally or pre-prenatally, people are used to, you know, stopping off at the restaurant and stopping off at the grocery store on a three times weekly basis and getting just enough for the meal that they want to cook for that one meal. You won't have time for that when you have a baby. Not only that, it means your refrigerator is going to be awfully empty most of the time. So... (laughs) So double up. Yeah. If you could buy one sausage, you can buy five. (laughs) That's more than double, I know. But, you know, if you could buy enough for lamb stew for two servings, you can make the same lamb stew and have it make 10 servings. Right? The pot's big enough. If you don't have the pot, go get the pot. Right? Have enough nourishment in your pantry and in your refrigerator for a week. It'll get eaten if you have a postpartum mom in the house, (laughs) especially if it's nicely prepared. I remember chatting with Ben, your husband, when he was getting ready to work and sitting down and strategizing, like, what's it going to be like if you have to be gone at work all day? When do you leave? When do you come home? You know, what does the week go like? And If you're making breakfast for yourself when you're going to be leaving the house, can you prepare enough as well for Sarah and put it by the bed before you leave the house? And uh, when you make dinner at night, can you make enough so that there's lunch for tomorrow? You know, we we had that kind of strategizing session. And of course, your husband so loves to cook that it wasn't a hard sell. (laughs) I'm happy to say. (laughs) Yeah. And it appealed to him, too as I remember, like, oh, yeah, this is how we can all 
feel good, you know, at the end of the day when it often is kind of rough for families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you have any last words of advice when it comes to food and nourishment? Part of nourishment in my estimation is enjoyment. Invest in making those foods that you know are nourishing and that you love. Like, you know, a lot of times people want what they call comfort food. So they want their mom to show up and they want her to make their favorite mac and cheese. And I don't have any problem with mac and cheese. I just don't want it to be the one thing that you eat all week. (laughs) Oh, Sarah, you know what we forgot to mention is deviled eggs. (laughs) Let's talk about deviled eggs. Deviled eggs, man, they pack a punch. And on a snack tray, along with that celery and peanut butter and hummus and carrots and broccoli and everything else, like you can devil a dozen, put them on a tray in the fridge, and mom can you know, make a a drive-by of the fridge, pull out two deviled eggs and get through the day, right? Get through to the next meal when she just needs that hit of protein and fats and deliciousness. A deviled egg really takes you far. So, um, yeah, especially when hunger hits at 6 a.m., 10 a.m., 1 p.m., 3 p.m., dinner. (laughs) Yes, beautifully put, yeah. My clients who like deviled eggs love deviled eggs. They feel like they've just gone to heaven if they can have a deviled egg, you know. Again, it doesn't take a whole lot more time to devil a dozen eggs than it would take to devil four. So there's no reason why a friend can't bring over a whole big plate of deviled eggs and get you through a couple of days, right? That's another little hint and tip for you out there. But I think of the deviled egg as that classic thing that's like such a treat and simultaneously so nourishing, so good for you, so helpful, you know, to that mom who's come home from the hospital anemic. She needs the iron and the protein and the omega fatty acids and the wonderful flavor and comfort of a deviled egg. I love it. If if you remember one thing, remember deviled eggs, please. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't love deviled eggs, think of the thing that would be just like a deviled egg. (laughs) I can't think of what would be, but, you know, maybe, maybe you have your favorite thing at home that is the facsimile of a deviled egg. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. You're always... Your questions are always spot on and your descriptions of your experience also are just so wonderful for that soon-to-be parent to have to kind of really put things in context. I think it's very difficult for people to imagine what it's going to be like. And you do a great job of remembering and describing what it is like. Well, thank you. All right, everybody. Well, we'll see you next time. We've got irons in the fire that we're looking forward to. You can find out more about Esther Gallagher on estergallagher.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband, Ben, daughter, Penelope, and baby girl, Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. 
Hello again, bicycle man. I know you're doing all that you can. I wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. Your gears, you ride around town without any fear. You got your pedals, you got your brakes. You always wear your helmet for safety's sake. Song, I sing a song for you. 